0: Do we have any Office fans in the room today? The TV show, The Office, any fans of it? All right, I see a hand. I knew there'd be some in the room uh, today. By no means is The Office the, the perfect show. Unfortunately, there are off-color themes and jokes in that show like so many others. But what I do know is that millions of people have enjoyed the, the TV show over the last number of years. And in one of the episodes, the main character, his name is Michael Scott, he's determined to prove that technology is not everything when it comes to business, specifically the paper business. And so he and his coworker, Dwight Schrute, they go about driving around Scranton, personally dropping off gift baskets to some of their customers. Well, Dwight and Michael are on their way to the Elmhurst Country Club. And the the GPS that they're using tells them that they should turn right. And Dwight, he's pretty certain that it's not meaning an immediate right because, Michael, there is a lake right next to us. And yet Michael doesn't listen. And he has these uh, words that he shares. He says, Dwight, the machine knows where it's going. And the next thing you hear is splash. And Dwight and Michael and the gift basket and the car are right in the lake. Now, when you or I are navigating the highway or navigating the roads in town, um, there are sometimes things we come across that surprise us, like Unexpected traffic or a flat tire or a detour that we weren't expecting. And then when you're traveling on the road, there are things that you just expect that you'll come across, like a stop sign or a stoplight, or if your eyes are open, the lake that's right in front of you. As you might expect, in this series we're starting, we are not talking at all about how to navigate roads with your car. But instead, as the theme introduces or the series theme says, we have, we're going to be focusing on this, how to navigate culture. How to navigate the, the culture that we live in And when it comes to the American culture that we are interacting with and that we live in, it's definitely a very interesting time. In fact, as we've been navigating these roads, I wonder if you've ever felt like I have, like surprised. Surprised about some of the things that we are having to think about and to talk about. Surprised as you watch the news or read what maybe people you know uh, think about and believe on social media, surprised that some of these topics are actually topics that are garnering our attention. And I think for all of us, maybe not everyone, but most, there's just... There is a part of us that has had so much thrown in our direction, especially over the last five years, that I could understand if there are some of us gathered here in the room or listening online, that even just on a personal level, having a hard time navigating exactly what it is that you believe or that you think about some of these topics. What, what is true, and what I hope that you do all believe or know is that the topic of navigating culture is a very timely one for us. And so over the course of this four-week series, um, we're going to be digging into some topics like identity, sexuality, um, church and politics, some of these things that are coming at our direction to, to find truth. But at the very same time, today where we want to start is not with one of those topics, but instead what I want to start with is providing us from the Bible a framework, a framework to navigate culture. Now, let me be clear, you and I, we don't need a framework to determine what's right or what's wrong. The Bible is our guide for that. But what we're also going to discover and what this series is all about is not just telling people biblically or telling us or reminding us what's right or what's wrong. There's, there's part of that. But navigating culture, when you recognize that we are here on this planet for something bigger than just ourselves, we come to recognize that it's not just about what's right or what's wrong. As Christians, it's also about how do we navigate and interact, not just with culture, but with the people that we live with, that we go to school with, that we're online with, that we work with. Sometimes it's easy to know what's right or wrong, sometimes. What's harder to know is what to do in a certain circumstance or situation. What's harder to know is what to say or what not to say. That's why I think in many ways, this first week of the series, in some ways, might be the most important one. Because I guarantee you, 10 years from now, some of the topics that we're navigating culturally in America will have changed. But what won't change is the biblical framework that we're gonna lay out for today. So, where are we today? Where are we culturally? What are the the things that are on people's hearts and minds? What are the things that we're navigating? Well, here's what's true. Some of the things that we're navigating right now, people or Americans 100 years ago did not navigate, was not on their radar. Some of the things we're looking for answers to were not questions for people 50 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago. Like what? Well, Here maybe are some of those questions. Things like, when does life begin? Or, what does marriage look like? Should there be parameters around a person's sexual lifestyle? Or, as long as it's two consenting adults, does anything go? What about gender identity? How focused should a Christian be at keeping America a Christian nation? These are all questions that... I know we want answers to. But let me remind you again that just an answer to these questions is not necessarily at the heart of this series, just purely answers. Because we are here on this planet for a reason and a purpose that God has given to us. And when I see or when we see some churches or some Christians, and sometimes it's even us, reacting or navigating some of the answers to these questions, I find that, well, let's put it this way. The Christian church isn't perfect, and Christians aren't perfect in our navigation of these things. Uh, Some of the things I've noticed that uh, I would say, are not necessarily the way we should navigate it, would be maybe one category would be this, that churches are Christians, that they get so upset by what's going on that they just decide to separate from the culture. This is a church that that I'm thinking of that is all about just making sure that everyone knows what the Bible says is right and what the Bible says is wrong, But then it just kind of stops there. The churches or the Christians that tend to come off as not really caring about people, but just caring about what is right. They often, not always, but often can come off as judgmental or angry. What happens is, and we're gonna talk about why this isn't the right way in just a moment, is that churches or Christians that just separate from culture They're content to just say, okay, that's what they're going to believe. I'm just going to stay here in my little holy huddle. I'm going to put up walls and just be comfortable and be safe. On maybe the other end of the spectrum, I've seen Christians or churches react with a different approach, and that's this um, on the other end, that they just assimilate to culture. These are churches or Christians who begin to change their message based on whatever culture thinks is right or what's wrong, or at the very least, they kind of water down the message that God has given to us. Now, let me be really clear. Sometimes this comes off as being, or at least they think that it's loving. But if something is true, It's never loving to ignore it. I was thinking about this. Like, imagine that there's a plane that you know that two of the engines don't work. And everyone's gathered in that plane to take off on vacation. And you feel like, you know what? I know that no one likes to have a delayed flight and they're already on the plane, so I'm just not going to say anything because they're, they're going to be uncomfortable having to get off that plane and get back onto it. <laughs> as hard as it would be for people to have to get off the plane, the reality is, is that better that someone, namely you, share the truth that there are two engines on this plane that doesn't work. Sharing truth is always the most loving thing to do. So before we get into the framework, the last thing that I think really sets up this framework for us is to then be reminded of this. What is or what has then God called us to do in this world? And one of the, one of the cool things about North Cross is that every single week, and this might be you today, every single week there are people who gather here who are brand new to the Bible, brand new to this church, or brand new to Jesus. And we are so glad that you're here. And the first thing that I want you to come to know and understand is the amazing sacrifice and love that Jesus has for you. But when we, and this is most of us, have then come to know what Jesus has done and how he has changed our lives and given us hope for eternity, it changes, as we say, everything, right? It changes our purpose in this world. It changes how we view our life. And it's an opportunity to live in response to Jesus' love. And the purpose, the new purpose that we are given was given to us by Jesus, In one of the places that he announces this is written by Mark, in Mark chapter 16, where Jesus tells his people, go into the world and preach the gospel, the good news to all creation. And so we have to understand that God has called us, if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, God has called us not just to get through life being as comfortable as possible and just surrounding ourselves with people who believe the same thing all the time, but instead we are called into the world to go and share the good news of the world with all creation because there are people that don't know Jesus, increasingly so in our culture and in our world. So what does that look like as individuals? What does that look like as a church? What we say here at North Cross, and it's our first fill-in for today as well, we take that mission that Jesus has given to us and we say it this way, that our mission as a church, our mission as individuals is to lead people to Jesus. And so that mission that mission makes it very clear that we can't simply just separate from our culture and call it good because we've been called to make a difference in the world. At the same time, we can't assimilate to the culture either, at least all of the the different things, especially, of course, what I'm talking about is when they're in conflict with with God's truth. We can't assimilate to the culture either. And so you know what would be helpful? A framework. A framework. Something to think about as we navigate that. And for that framework, we're going to turn to some verses uh, that were written at the beginning of John's biography of Jesus. Uh, Most of you know John, this John at least, was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He spent uh, three years with Jesus. He he saw Jesus live. He saw Jesus die. He saw the resurrected Jesus. Jesus. And then he, directed by God, wrote a biography of Jesus' life. And as he started out this biography in the very first chapter, he did not start with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. He didn't start with John the Baptist or any other sort of historical type of event. Instead, he starts with some commentary. Before he writes about Jesus' life, he starts by Explaining and describing how Jesus, this one I'm going to be writing about, this one I spent three years with, how he was different. We're going to look at some of those verses. Verse 14 of John chapter 1. He says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, I could preach an entire message on that word, the word, and what it means, logos in the Greek. But for our purposes today, what John is saying is, That when you look at Jesus and after spending three years with him, John is saying, what became very clear is that God, the word, became flesh. That Jesus was not a normal person. That he was a human being, but that he was also, also God. He continues, we've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And one of the things I was thinking about as as I read these words from John is that word John said that he had seen his glory. And I thought about what God's glory most looked like in the Old Testament. And for centuries, when God's people, the Israelites, those who believed in, in Yahweh, the true God, When they thought about God, when they saw his glory, you know what the primary feeling was that they had? It was fear and awe. We had a whole series about this uh, not too long ago. And in the Old Testament, there was very much strategically by God. He, he wanted people to understand the difference between a sinful person and a holy God and to grow in them an understanding that there needs to be something to bring that holy God and sinful people back together to, to make a bridge over that chasm. But every time that people were in the presence of God, there tended to be fear and a covering of the eyes. And even in the temple, that that room called the Holy of Holies, where God's special presence dwelt, if, if people went into that room, except for one day a year and after sacrifices were made, any other day of the year, you go into that room of God's special presence, and that person would die. Because when it comes to the glory of God, the emphasis and this is still true, but the emphasis was on the difference between a holy God and sinful people. And then, and then Jesus comes to earth and John says, we've seen his glory and I know that he's God's son. I've seen him die, I've seen him rise. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And then listen how he explains or describes it. He was a person, he describes as full of grace, and full of truth. God becomes a human being. His name is Jesus. And as John, before he writes all the different events, he says, I want you to understand something about Jesus. He was someone who seemed to be, who was filled with grace. That is God's undeserved love. Love for sinful people who don't deserve it and he's also filled with truth. That is, that there is one truth. That there is right and there is wrong. That there is a way that people should think, or live I should say, and a way that people shouldn't live. And it's not up to our opinion. And there's a way to view the world, and there's a way not to view the world. And it's not up to what you think. And there's one way to get to the Father and to heaven and to be saved. And then there are other ways that don't lead to Jesus or don't lead to heaven. And Jesus was all about both that grace and also about truth. Let's finish out these verses and then we'll talk about it. John continues by... uh, Bringing up another John, um, this one was John the Baptist, whom his readers would have probably known. And, and John's like, you know, maybe he's thinking, you know, if you don't believe my testimony about Jesus, this is the same Jesus whom John the Baptist said concerning him. He cried out, John the Baptist did, this Jesus is the one I spoke about when I said, he who will come after me, He, Jesus, who would start his ministry after John has surpassed me, is better than me because he was before me. He was God. He was always uh, existing. Jesus was God from eternity until eternity. Verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And one of the things that struck me again is kind of that that contrast between Jesus, God, and what people would have thought about God in the Old Testament. Let's be clear. God was about grace in the Old Testament, and he was about grace and undeserved love in the New Testament. But it just looked and felt a little bit different. And when John saw Jesus, God, the only son, he said, it's like, it was grace after grace after grace after grace. I was, I was thinking about it. I don't know, kids, if you know what a Pez dispenser is, but it's like you, you, it's that little little toy. You open it up and there's a little candy that comes out. And if it's working correctly, when you put the head back down and open it up again, there's another one and then another one and then another one. And that's kind of what John is saying when, when I think about Jesus. He was truth and grace and grace. There was grace after grace after grace. And then he concludes in this section this way. For the law, the directions for what is right and wrong in the Old Testament were given through Moses. And then grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So as John thinks about this Jesus whom he spent three years with, so he thinks about one of the best ways to describe him and his ministry. Said, you know, when I, I think of Jesus, our second fill in, Jesus was full of grace, undeserved love is the definition of karos and truth. That there is a one way, and there is a right, and there is a wrong. And, and I want to I vet that out a little bit with you this morning because all of this I think is going to help as we then try to navigate our culture. Um, when it comes to truth, think about Jesus and his ministry over those three years. Do you know what Jesus was always very willing to do? To share what's true. Never once did Jesus water down truth. God's truth is true, so the most loving thing to do is to share it. Um, In fact, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus does this little comparison, and I'm going to read a couple of them in a second, where he talks about, you've heard it said fill in the blank. But let me tell you, this is what God says is true. And what you're going to see is that Jesus isn't watering anything down. In fact, he's actually upping the ante a little bit. He's raising the bar. Let me give you a couple examples here. Matthew chapter five, part of Jesus' sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard, because this was cultural, you've heard it was said that you shouldn't commit adultery. Everyone kind of understands that. People know that it's wrong to commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you think this is an easy message to hear? Upping that truth? Or maybe better said, making sure people understood what was always already God's truth? Or a little bit later, you've heard that it was said because this was cultural Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes sense, doesn't it, in their culture? You're not going to love people who are uh, your enemy. But I tell you, because this is God's truth, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or right before Jesus died in that upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus is super clear about the truth of forgiveness and salvation. And um, I would say if Jesus said this today and he was a very uh, known person and it was in the news or something like that, I can just imagine the reaction, but this is truth. John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and I'm filling in the blank a little bit here, there are not multiple ways to come to God. There are not multiple ways to be forgiven or to go to heaven. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you think Jesus ever ruffled people's feathers? Do you think what he said ever hurt people's feelings? Absolutely We have examples of it. The interesting thing is most of the time his truth or many times at least ruffled the the feathers of uh, uh, the religious elite and things but Jesus didn't care about that because truth needs to be shared. But at the very same time what else did John say that Jesus was about when he looked at Jesus' life that he was also about grace? That is undeserved love. And When you think back to Jesus' ministry, you cannot read through the Gospels and not be amazed at Jesus' patience and his care and his love for the people of that culture, the people that he came to save. I remember this one time where Jesus had had a long day of ministering and all he wanted to do was to rest And yet people were bringing their sick and their paralyzed and their hurting. And Jesus, although in his true humanity tired, he decided to spend the entire day with these people, healing the sick and healing the hurting and the paralyzed. I think of the Samaritan woman at the well whom Jesus in his own mind, made a very specific appointment with her. He, he wanted to meet this woman. And culturally, to talk to a woman in public, to talk to a Samaritan woman as a Jewish person in public, to talk to a Samaritan woman who also had a very promiscuous lifestyle and background would have been unheard of for a religious person for a rabbi and yet there he is listening to this woman not in any way excusing her past but letting her know that he loves her and that he has water for her that if she receives she will never go thirsty again or how about Matthew, ever heard of him? He's one of the 12 disciples. He also happened to be what before he became a disciple? Tax collector. Culture, the Jewish culture at least, did not look very kindly on tax collectors. And frankly, they were greedy and they did cheat people. But Jesus, he comes across Matthew. And not only is he willing to talk to Matthew, he says, hey, you want to be one of my 12 guys, one of my 12 disciples. Oh, and by the way, um, I'm kind of hungry. I'm going to come over to your house for lunch today. And Jesus didn't excuse Matthew's sin or Matthew's greed, but in grace, he was willing to spend time with him and even call him to be a disciple. And when the culture looked at this, at least the Pharisaical culture looked at it, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why Why is he doing this? It's not because he agreed with Matthew's lifestyle. It's because he knew Matthew needed a savior. And then of course, Jesus showed the ultimate display of his grace by staying on this earth until that point that he chose the cross and chose to be crucified and to die, not just in the place of Matthew, not just in the place of a promiscuous Samaritan woman, but in the place of me and in the place of you and in the place of the world. And here's where Jesus' life then and his ministry intersects with ours. Because I I believe, I know, that we are called to a very similar ministry, not to be the Savior, but to lead people to the Savior. And so here's our framework, my friends. Our framework for navigating culture includes both grace and truth. Both. Both not one or the other, not separating from culture, not assimilating to culture, both, both grace and both truth. But here's the challenge. Jesus got this right every single time. You know why? Because he was the perfect son of God. It's harder for me sometimes. It can be hard for you. I know. And there's multiple reasons why it's hard. I think sometimes it's, maybe the relationship we have with a person that we want to share truth and grace with, and we don't feel like we have that in with them to be able to, to share what we feel they need to hear. Sometimes it has to do with personality. You know, if you think back to the home you grew up in, I'm guessing one of your parents was grace and one of your parents was truth, right? You can just, you know, think to yourself which was which and if you're a kid here in the room, tell mom and dad later, not right now. Which one are they? But we all have different personalities, right? And so some of us lean hard towards grace and some of us lean, lean hard towards truth and they're not necessarily opposites, but in some ways, They're different emphases, aren't they? Grace and truth in in some ways. And so when we try to apply this framework to our own lives, to the lives of the people around us, and and to the ministry of this church, you know what's going to create? It's going to create some tension. I'm not telling you, we're not telling you in this series exactly what to do in every situation. But we're going to share truth, And we're going to remind you of the importance of grace. And then we're going to have to pray. And we're going to have to be patient. And we're gonna have to ask ourselves, what does it look like in this situation to lead people to Jesus? I think of a family that I knew growing up and when their daughter grew to adulthood, she married a guy who um, eventually, as they got married, they both left the Christian church and joined a church that did not teach that Jesus was the savior of the world. And how do you think her Christian parents felt about that? It wasn't easy. And so what they did was they continued to love her. They continued to try to have a relationship with her. They prayed thousands and thousands and thousands of prayers for her, I'm sure. But at the very same time that they loved her, they they never gave her the impression that they were okay with that choice. And did it cause some challenges here and there? Absolutely. It probably would have been easier for them just to ignore it. But it was better that they didn't. Or maybe for some of you, it's a friend, it's a family member, it's a child, it's a parent who are making some decisions that you know are not in line with what God's truth is. And it can be easier not to say anything And we can't say something every single moment that we're with them, but we need to navigate and recognize that it's easier not to do anything, but it's better that we don't, that we do something. So here's your homework. There's two parts of it for today. The first is this. I want you to spend a moment now, later, rejoicing that you have a God that has given both grace and truth in your life. And sometimes that's been through reading scripture. Sometimes that's through a church. Sometimes that's through a, a mom or a dad who is willing to share both grace and truth with you. And what a difference that makes. And then as we consider how to navigate culture, let's pray for wisdom and discernment. As there are, are people in our minds right now that we're thinking about, or as there are people that come on our paths in the future, let's pray for wisdom and discernment and how to not just show or share people that we're right, but to lead them to Jesus because it's in Jesus that we have hope and forgiveness and life eternal. And so there's like some questions as you pray for discernment uh, that you could consider. Like one question is, how do I best approach this person? Or better, another question is, how does our church best approach that person? How do I best approach this situation? How much does this person understand what Jesus has done for them? Because that will flavor what they need to hear and how we share it with them. Or how much does this person understand God's will for them? because they may not know something that you know about God's truth. And honestly, we as a church have very much had to wrestle with that, that not everyone is coming in with the same background. And so we have to make sure that everyone is up to speed on both God's love for them and also God's will for them. And another one, how can I best share grace and truth as a person or as a church? See, God has called us not just to make a point, He's called us by God's grace to make a difference. Next week, we're going to pick it up right there as we tackle uh, the topic of identity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we, uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came to this earth. He didn't water down truth, but he shared the truth about us, the truth about life, the truth about eternal life. He was all about it. At the very same time, Lord, as he did that, he also sprinkled grace into not all that he, not only all that he did, but also we see it ultimately in the sacrifice that he gave. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit as we aspire to do the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.